Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, if all things are impermanent, can gods die? They absolutely can. Though they may have lives that are inconceivably long relative to ours, they still experience aging, illness, and death. That's the reality of samsara. What about the hell dwellers and the hungry ghosts? They too have a very long life in many cases. I wonder how many of them regret craving a longer life now that they have one that is so tormented. Many of them, I'm sure. There can hardly be mindfulness in the various hells with their myriad sufferings. Why then are the lives of humans and animals so short? I imagine it is such that we may best come to understand the truth of impermanence. Welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism, where we will be discussing Buddhist cosmology in a little more detail. What are the different realms of samsara? What are their inhabitants like? What happens when they die? We hope you enjoy. So, what are the different realms of samsara? So I think that this is primarily a question of cosmology, and we need to first establish how difficult yet important it is to make sense of a religious cosmology that one, has changed considerably over time, two, regards the duality between things like here and there, or then and now, or material and immaterial, and so on, as non-dual, and three, accounts for all things and beings that can possibly be experienced and cognized at all. Because it has changed so much over time, it's impossible for us to actually adequately and accurately say what the Buddhist cosmology is for all of Buddhism. Similarly, we have to reconcile whatever cosmology we come across with the teachings of non-duality and emptiness. And finally, it's a grand task for any system of belief, any system of text, any system of philosophy to account for literally everything. So in answering this question, I will focus most on spatial cosmology in Buddhism and I will describe the inhabitants of as many levels as I can. We will have to leave behind temporal cosmology and form and formless cosmology for another episode. But the spatial cosmology will have to start from the unenlightened perspective and move on to a more enlightened doctrinal perspective that makes better sense of how that cosmology and the doctrines of emptiness and suchness and non-duality fit together. First, everything with a capital E every single thing in reality, is divided up into two possible modalities, samsara and nirvana. Nirvana is the realm of unconditionality, of non-existence, and of non-returning extinction. This makes it easy to understand. It's the easy realm, because there is no time, no birth and death and rebirth, and no different levels of existence that are determined by karma. Nirvana, by definition, is the absence of karma. Then there is samsara. Samsara is the realm of conditioned things which arise due to causes and conditions, the realm of birth and rebirth, the realm of karma and dukkha, and the realm of distinctions, such as time, space, type of being, type of rebirth, etc. It's commonly held in Theravada and in early Buddhism that there are six different realms of samsara that all exist at the same time in the same place. 
the members of these six realms cannot always see the members of the other realms, but they sometimes can. These six realms, as we have discussed, are hell dwellers, hungry ghosts, animals, people, asuras, and devas. These realms exist both in a hierarchy and on a continuum. The hierarchy is one of karma. Devas and hell dwellers live the longest, and humans and animals live the shortest, but devas have the best karma, and hell dwellers have the worst karma. The continuum is one of dukkha and one of sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha. Hell dwellers have the least sukha and the most dukkha. This indicates that their life is marked by the most torment, the most suffering, the most insatiability, the most anxiety, and the most negative, unwholesome mind states that you can possibly pack into one lifetime. The devas have the most sukha and the least dukkha, meaning that their mind states, their bodies, their realities, their karmic retribution and recompense, all very positive, all very wholesome, and all very conducive to mindfulness. The Mahayana traditions, which as we have discussed, come a little bit later, add a few more realms on top of all of this. In the Mahayana traditions, there are 10 plus 1 realms. The four new realms, which are hierarchically above the realms of the devas, are Shravakas, also known as Arhats, Pratyeka Buddhas, those who do not hear the teaching but attain enlightenment on their own in a solitary fashion, the Bodhisattvas, who save all sentient beings, and Buddhas, who have fully realized all of the teachings and upon their death do not return to samsara. The inhabitants of these realms, these four realms, can travel to all other realms and have different levels of supernatural powers. The plus one realm that I referred to accounts for the pure lands. Each fully realized Buddha, because of their previous work as a bodhisattva, has a Buddha Kasetra, or a Buddha field, which is referred to as a pure land. According to the Pure Land Buddhist tradition, which is extremely popular in Japan and in East Asia, if one is devoted to a particular Buddha, they may be born in that Buddha's pure land when they die. If they're born there, the Buddha of that land will preach the Dharma to them, and they will be one death away from fully realized Buddhahood. That means that no matter what stage, what level of samsara they exist in prior to going to this pure land, no matter what it is, they automatically become a bodhisattva. And the benefits that come with becoming a bodhisattva are that their bodies are all perfect, they have super long lifespans, and they will never regress from that stage. Once you're born in a pure land, and then you die, that's it. You've entered nirvana. You have completed the task. And there's no way to be born in a pure land and then be reborn again in hell or as an animal or any such thing like that. However, this place is definitely not yet nirvana because beings are born and die there. This place is also not samsara because there is absolutely no suffering or dukkha there. So it's ambiguous where in the cosmology this realm actually is. And I hope to discuss pure lands and the pure land Buddhist tradition in a lot more detail in the future. This has a very specific doctrinal aspect and a very specific cosmological aspect that's important to talk about. So the plus one realm, the pure lands, are kind of outside of samsara and nirvana? They kind of are and they kind of aren't, right? There's still time. There's still cause and condition. There's still birth and death. But there's also not suffering. There's also not regression. So in that regard, 
it might be like a place that bridges the gap between both. It might be an intermediary stage between samsara and nirvana. And in fact, some have theorized that the Pure Lands are conceived of as a mythologization of what nirvana is actually like. So what are the native inhabitants of these realms like? The Hell Dwellers have maximum dukkha and are divided into hot and cold hells, which each have a special, unique kind of suffering which they are focused on. These realms all coexist with each other and can be thought of more like ailments and afflictions that each being can experience due to their karmic retribution. For example, there is a hell of blisters, there's a hell of being crushed, etc. These beings are just subject to a really long time of suffering of a certain kind as retribution for bad deeds done in a previous life. Hungry ghosts, or predas, are seemingly supernatural beings of insatiable desire, hence being called hungry. These are invisible ghosts that can sometimes cause problems for humans and for animals. A hungry ghost, typically it's thought of, can possess a person, can be a parasite spiritually or emotionally, or can cause mischief and chaos for a person. You might think that these could occupy a less powerful space, but a similar domain as a trickster deity in other religions. Additionally, it might be like a demon in Judeo-Christian religions. And this might also be a way that they come to an explanation and an understanding for why certain people have really bad luck, or why they have maybe something that they didn't have the vocabulary for or the diagnostic system for, like depression or schizophrenia. So these hungry ghosts factor a lot both into folk tales and into the Buddhist cosmology and Buddhist doctrine. To that end, there are a lot of rituals for banishing hungry ghosts or for purifying their karma to make them into animals or people or something like that upon their death and rebirth into their next life. In the next realm, the animals and the humans are the most familiar. All humans can see all animals, all animals can see all humans and we kind of exist very close together. We coexist. The realms that we may be the least familiar with are the devas and the asuras. These two realms are where we would find gods inherited from other native religions, like religions of India, China, and Japan. The gods in these realms have a very long lifespan, and they have very large and very beautiful bodies, and they have reaped the material benefits of good karma. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are even one step further on the path of enlightenment than the next guy. They simply have knowingly or unknowingly accrued good karma through good acts over the course of their lives. And in fact, there's a category of asuras and devas and all other types of beings which will never ever ever reach enlightenment because they reject the teaching or they slander the teaching or something like that. Similarly, these gods have supernatural powers and domains. For example, the Asuras are known as the jealous gods, or the demigods, or to use a Greek term, the titans. And they are highly subject to the passions, such as pride, lust, greed, etc. But they have beautiful bodies and supernatural powers, as what you might call recompense for their good karma. The devas are fully realized gods who really are not bothered by the passions in the same way, and of course they have the most good karma, and their realm is marked by the most sukha and the least dukkha, meaning that instead of cravings, desires, anxieties, insatiability, they are marked by contentment, mindfulness, and the absence of unwholesome mind states. So what happens when beings in these realms die? 
all beings in all realms have a finite lifespan. As opposed to other religious traditions, in Buddhism, gods can die, and nothing has an eternal life. Some of the beings in these different realms have extremely long lifespans, and others have extremely short lifespans. That depends on their karmic history, their karmic past, and it also depends on the conditions of that life. A very, very, very long life in a low, horrible hell would be a lot of karmic punishment, a lot of karmic retribution. But a very long life in one of the heavens where the Asuras and Devas live, that would be a karmic recompense for good deeds done. It would be very pleasant. Nevertheless, there's no eternal life, even if all of these different lifespans can be immeasurably long or immeasurably short. So when any being in any realm dies, they are reborn, either in the same realm or in another realm, depending on their karmic past. If you accrue enough good karma in this life, there is a chance that you are reborn in this same realm in a better status, in a better social position, in a better material sense than you were in this life. Or you can go to a pure land, or you can go to a better realm. But if you accrue bad karma, then your circumstances get worse and you're born into a worse realm. The other possibility is that whenever a being in, in any of these realms dies is that they attain Buddhahood and they're not reborn at all. It's possible to become a Buddha in any one of the realms. However, the hierarchy of karma is mostly correlative with the hierarchy of how difficult it is to become a Buddha. What I mean by that is that hell dwellers have the most difficulty becoming a Buddha. And though you might think devas have the least difficulty, they actually have some trouble as well. The optimal realm to be born in, some say, is the realm of humans. This is the optimum realm for the ability to become a Buddha and the desire to become a Buddha. The reason for that, some argue, is that the realm of the humans is marked by just the right balance of sukha and dukkha. We have access to the experience of sukha, but we also understand the existence of dukkha. So, that being the case, humans understand the urgency and feel the pressure to walk the path of enlightenment, but they're not so bogged down with constant hellish suffering that it interferes with their mindfulness. Hell dwellers are not able to meditate because they have constant blisters, or they are being crushed, or they're being burned. Similarly, why would devas ever want to meditate or feel the urgency to attain Buddhahood? They have such great material and physical and emotional circumstances that they never feel this urgent need to escape sukkha. Additionally, human beings are the most likely to encounter a Buddha out of all of the other realms. For some reason, perhaps this is a little bit of anthropological bias or a, uh, a human bias in these types of religions, for some reason, a Buddha is most likely to appear in and to visit the realm of human beings, as opposed to the realm of hell dwellers, or the realm of animals, or of devas, or anything like that. That being the case, often one meditation they do is that we should be thankful that we are born as humans and not as dogs, and not as bugs, and not as gods, and not as demons. Because in this life, we have come to understand and encounter the teaching and have thus encountered the Buddha because the teaching is what the Buddha left behind in this realm. And so we've encountered the Buddha through the teachings and the same can't really quantifiably be verifiably said for 
the realm of animals or the realms of hungry ghosts or gods or anything like that because we can't see those beings. We can't see those realms. We can only see the realms of the animals and we can't talk to the animals. So we can only be sure that a Buddha has visited the realm of humans. Although in the texts, there is some indication and some stories where Buddhas go to the other realms. It seems to me that the reason you're most likely to encounter a Buddha in a the human realm is because that's where they can do the most good. Because right. what the hell realms, it, mindfulness is impossible. And why would they listen to the Buddha anyway? Meanwhile, in the heavenly realms, they have no reason to want to escape. So yeah, they're going where they're needed is my understanding of that. That's exactly right. And the hell dwellers often end up there because they do one of the five awful crimes or the five worst crimes. These include killing members of your family. These include causing a schism in the Buddhist community. These include trying to harm a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. And that's how they land in those realms in the first place. And that being the case, yeah, they would not listen to the Buddha. They would not practice the teaching. They have a poor relationship with the teaching, and that's kind of how they got there. And just like you say, the devas... They have it made. They don't need to do any of that. There is some mythology regarding a war between the Asuras and the Devas. We won't go too deep into that because that is partially inherited from Brahmanical traditions. And it also doesn't factor heavily into the teachings that we deal with the most, especially in Mahayana Buddhism. But the idea is that because the Asuras are subject to the passions and so jealous and so greedy, lustful, prideful, whatever. They're very warlike. And so they actually have attacked the devas because the devas have more material and physical wealth and and they're chill. Like they don't, you know, they're, they're gods. They're fully realized gods and they don't really do anything with it. And asuras are called jealous gods because they're jealous and they want that stuff. They want long lives. They want the material benefits of all the good karma. And so they entered into a war together. That is an indicator of what you might say, how good karma does not necessarily mean that you are any closer to enlightenment, right? Human beings fight wars and we can easily write that off and say, well, yeah, that's because we're not very spiritually developed as a complete and total species. Some of us may be, but the rest of us aren't. Well, we can't say that the gods are any more spiritually developed than us in Buddhism because they do the same thing. I want to go back to the idea of extremely long lives, especially for the hell dwellers. When I first encountered the idea of Buddhist hell and was like, oh, this has a duration. That's a huge improvement. And then I went and actually looked up the numbers for how long we're talking about for extremely long. And it's literally in scientific notation. It is, yeah. You can. A short version would be billions of years. A short hell, a short stay in one of the cold hells would be billions of years. And in the worst hells, the worst hell dwellers would be living in that hell for like six and 24 zeros of years. It's, yeah. it's a very long time. Buddhism has a unique ability and a unique propensity to use numbers that completely boggle the mind and go beyond conventional understanding of time. 
That's why they often say, even though it's impermanent, it's still immeasurably long. Yeah, they a lot of numbers in Buddhism grow geometrically, and geometric growth causes things to get really, really big, really, really quickly. Absolutely. Like they're doubling every time. So, yeah, that was an interesting moment of like, oh, we're really just using, we don't have language in English for these numbers, so we have to use scientific notation. Exactly. And oftentimes you'll hear Buddhists and Buddhist scholars say, at least it's impermanent, right? <laughs> Even if it's yeah. so long, it's still impermanent. But I don't think that that fully captures the fact that if we're talking about years, Human beings have 80 to 100 years if they're very, very, very good and lucky and healthy. And animals have like, you know, between 8 and 15 years. I'm thinking of dogs and cats in particular, right? It, it depends tremendously on the animal. Of like, course, yeah. There's turtles you know, that can live for 150 plus years and stuff. A lot of parrots live as long as people. Exactly, yeah. But the idea is that we have roughly like a similar... Maybe a lot of animals have a, a shorter lifespan, but we have roughly a similar lifespan. But the gods and the hell dwellers, they they live for a very, very, very inconceivably long time. They li they live for geological time. They don't live for conventional time. And hungry ghosts can live for a long time too. Typically, they don't because the rituals that Buddhists do take care of them and regularly purify them. So. A hungry ghost, if you have to be born in a lower realm, you can't be born as a house cat, which would be optimal. You can't be born as as a dog that's got a farm it can run around on, which would be optimal. If you have to be born in worse circumstances than that, a hungry ghost might be the best one because there's not constant rituals going on to purify the karma of dogs. There's not constant rituals going on to purify the karma of parrots. But there are constant rituals, and I mean constant rituals, going on to purify the bad karma of hungry ghosts. And that being the case, you might say that, mathematically speaking, hungry ghosts are being purified and changed to better circumstances equally, if not more fast, than they're being created, than they're being reborn into that realm. So let's all hope that if we have to be born somewhere below the realm of animals, it's not in one of the hells where we have to live for billions of years but it's in the realm of hungry ghosts where at least people are trying to help us out. At some point, we should talk about what one does to get into these individual realms. But for the moment, I think we've got enough to call this a good introduction to the different realms. Yeah, sounds good to me. We hope you have enjoyed our discussion of Buddhist cosmology. Join us next week where we will discuss destiny and fate. How does Buddhism deal with the issue of destiny and fate? How much control does one have over destiny and fate? How does karma fit into all of this? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, We'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or a review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha. Link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. 
Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.